Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Stuart Cosgrove who is a writer and broadcaster based in Glasgow. Stuart was formerly a writer at the NME in the face back in the 1980s and he was also an executive for Channel 4 where he was controller of arts and entertainment and then head of programmes at the channel. He also co-hosts the popular and long-running BBC Scotland radio show Off the Ball with Tam Cowan which first hit the airwaves back in August 1994. And for the record, for anyone who doesn't already know, Stuart's great sporting love is St Johnson Football Club, based in his hometown of Perth. Stuart is also the author of The Soul Trilogy, a series of books on soul music and social change. They are Detroit 67, The Year That Changed Soul, Memphis 68, The Tragedy of Southern Soul, and Harlem 69, The Future of Soul. And Stuart's latest book, Cassius X, was published in September 2020 by Polygon. Stuart, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thank you very much indeed. That's a, a sterling introduction to me. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it kind of touches on two of your, your twin passions, I suppose, of sport, primarily football, and also music. But then, obviously, getting in, particularly with the books, you can see it's more than just about music that you wrote in those books. Yeah, I think that the, the real passion for me there, and it's something that I hadn't really kind of been aware of until I, I started kind of doing things like podcasts and interviews about the book. I, I had a school teacher, a modern studies teacher, when I was at school called Lorna Campbell, Miss Campbell. And she was really, really good at encouraging me to follow some of the kind of passions that I had in, in my modern studies, um, six-year studies and hires. And she had said to me, oh, you seem to like soul music, you know, and I, I kind of was a fan of Motown and that, which is the kind of music of my teenage era. And she had encouraged me to look into the civil rights context of that, literally as a school student. So it, way, it began way, way back. And at the time, you know, I was really kind of skimming the surface of it, but I kind of knew who Martin Luther King was, and I knew a wee bit about some of the kind of uh, desegregation of schooling and that. But as I got older and as I read more and as I started to fashion what the books would be like, I, I went more intensely into that social and political context. Um, and because I spent a lot of time on the Northern soul scene uh, and as a collector of kind of rare soul music, it's virtually an academy uh, for training you about soul music. It's a kind of weird, weird thing. I can't think of the equivalent in Scottish public life. Maybe St Aloysius, the school, which seems to spend a lot of time teaching people how to be your real Celtic fans, you know, <laughs> an element of that. But for me, it was being taught uh, at Northern Seoul uh, how to understand independent, rare and not easily available soul and how that fitted into the the, the music market of the 1960s. So when I started working on the three books of the trilogy, uh, I already came in, in a way quite prepared. I had quite a lot of haversack on my back of uh, knowledge and understanding. And it was a case of just 
uh, narrowing it down, going out in the case of Detroit, going out, sitting in the library there, looking at every newspaper across a three-week period, uh, sorry, a three-year period, and looking for stories that kind of resonated uh, at the time, either with social change or with the music or with some uh, variation on both. Um, so the, the books are forensically very well researched. And I say so myself in as much as I put a lot of time into that. Partly, and it's not all out of generosity of spirit, I think I'm at my happiest when I'm uh, researching, when I'm kind of getting into the literally the bare bones of a subject and going back and testing it and seeing who else has written about it. And, you know, it, it, it gives me a lot of pleasure that. And it's quite a solitary subject, but then again, I'm a bit of a loner, so that, that's fine, you know. Because that struck me... You know, you just touched on the fact that you took a lot of research. And in terms of the books with that project, I suppose you don't want to go in it half-hearted because you want to be judged, as you say, with the forensic research because there's always other, there's other people. You're not the only, I suppose, expert on that kind of music yeah. in that period. And so you almost like your peers, in a way, you want that to hold up when they examine it. That's right. And, and you know, the, the, the soul scene's got quite a kind of unforgiving kind of elite of people that collect the music and they, they can be fairly kind of forensic. So I kind of, you know, when the books uh, hit, hit the shops, you always wait for the kind of guy that goes on a soul forum and exposes them for errors of mistakes and things like that. But I've been very fortunate in, in that respect. So, um, no, very, very, very proud of them. And one of the things about them is that I think that they'll, they'll last the test of time because they are historical. You know, they, you know, if you read it in 10 years' time, the, book will still, the books will still hold together. So uh, I'm happy for them to be in print for the rest of my life, you know. And was, was that always conceived as a project that would involve a trilogy of books? I was leaving Channel 4 and taking uh, a very uh, agreeable retirement package. And, and so to some extent, Paul, it gave me the thing that most um, writers crave. It gave me financial security. I knew that I had enough money coming in through pension and through the doing the off the ball at the weekend to have a very good kind of income. And that gave me a lot of kind of confidence to do the books I wanted to do rather than to try to write a book for money. And as it transpired, I imagined the trilogy as having kind of scope and scale and wanted it to be something that I'd kind of imagined all my life that I'd like to write. And I was, I'd gone to the movies with one of my mates, a St. Johnson fan who'd grown up with me, who's also a soul music fan. And we were watching the film and as we were coming out at the end, he said to me, my mate said to me, is it the case that Florence Ballard was sacked on the day of the Detroit riots? And I thought to myself, you know, it's implicit within the movie in Dreamgirls, the uh, story of the Supremes, the fictional story of the Supremes. And I didn't know the answer, but I said to him, I'll go and find out and see whether the movie's accurate or not. It was clearly fictional, so quite a lot of it was taken liberties. But I went and I said to him, you know what? I've had a better thought. I'm going to tell you what happened every single day in 1967 to this, the main characters within Motown and the Detroit music scene. And I was very lucky because not only did it coincide with the riots, but with the collapse and de decline of Florence Ballard, but it also coincided with the literal collapse on stage uh, of Tammy Terrell, who had a brain hemorrhage and, and died a couple of years later. So there's quite a lot of 
very, very strong, dramatic activities going on in that year. And that gave me the idea. Memphis was easier in as much as there were two uh, big significant deaths, the assassination of Martin Luther King in the April and the funeral stroke homecoming uh, of the young men that died with Otis Redding in the plane crash uh, that killed Otis Redding. That was the last few weeks of December 1967. And as their goods came home and all their kind of, the police had released their watches and all of that, all of this stuff was arriving back in Memphis in the first month of the, the year. So I knew that I had the structure of a really strong book there. Um, Harlem was the one that was going to be the most difficult. Why did I go for Harlem? Well, it's the capital city of African-American culture historically, but also it was the place where music was changing the most. Funk, street funk, psychedelic soul. There was a heroin pandemic. So I knew there was quite a lot to write about. Um, and I actually like the Harlem book a lot. I mean, if I'd a, somebody had a gun to my head and said, you've got to choose one of them, I'd probably choose Detroit because uh, that's the name I've chosen on my Twitter account. So I'd probably choose Detroit. Because <laughs> it strikes me just from talking to you that, you know, that advice that writers are often given. If you can't find a book that you want to read, write it. And that, that strikes me. That's exactly what you've done. As you say, that some of it, the wee gem out of a conversation with a friend, but you know, if somebody else had written those books before you, I guess, and those are the books that you would have absolutely developed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, hey, look, you know, nothing would give me greater pleasure than to have found those books when I was kind of 23 or something like that, and I would have just simply adored them. Unfortunately, at that time, uh, soul music, as I would call it, African-American music, uh, the blues, everything, um, soul music was not that well written about. You could pick it up in magazines and things like that. But the books that were out tended to be, but even to this day, there tends to be a biographical approach. I'm writing a book about James Brown, about Marvin Gaye, about Aretha Franklin. And to some extent, by turning it into biography, there's not to say that you can't write an interesting book but you're limited to the way in which you can write about the wider kind of social circumstance for a whole range of reasons. Firstly, because there is a tendency for them to go back to their grandparents and try and identify their history. And, you know, that might be okay, but it feels a bit kind of distant from the subject. And then as they get more and more famous, clearly you're less kind of interested in the fact that they've moved to a new house in the suburban outskirts of Detroit and they're living in relative wealth. There doesn't seem to be an awful lot to, for me to say about things like that. So I like the idea of staying with the books when they were socially charged, when they're emotionally and socially charged. In terms of the podcast, uh, what I like to do with everyone is kind of take you on your literary journey of your life and take you right back to childhood for the, the first question, and that is your, your favourite book from childhood. And the book that you've chosen is 39 Steps by John Buchan. And what was it about that book that has well, left an indelible mark? Funnily enough, now here's an, an odd thing. I like the 39 Steps in part because big chunks of it are actually set in Scotland. When uh, Hanny, the central character, escapes, he comes up from London where he's living and he skates to Scotland and you see things I had, you know, I remember, for example, being on the train from Perth to Edinburgh, which would go across the old Fourth Railway Bridge. And, and that was one of the scenes in the 39 Steps. He also uh, goes to the borders and there's other places. But the more simple reason was that Perth is not globally known 
for its literary excellence. Uh, but John Buchan was actually originally from Perth. And the house that he occupied uh, when he was a young man, my sister knows more about the detail of his flat because she actually later on lived next door to John Buchan, although John Buchan had long since gone. Um, and it's in a place called York Place in Perth in the old Glasgow Road as it comes into the city centre. It's on the right, uh, and it's an old kind of um, Victorian villa, and John Buchan lived there. And he, he was one of the very, very few people that when you had a kind of school, school expedition and the teacher was saying, right, get your coats on, we're going for a walk, we'd walk past John Buchan's old house. So I kind of had a little kind of thing about him. I mean, you know, not the most brilliant writer and obviously caught up in a very different world of um, Britain than the one that I grew up in, in terms of social class and everything. But nonetheless, there was a connection there. So I chose the 39 steps. One of the things I liked when I was just doing a wee bit of research into it, certainly it's maybe not so prevalent now, but it was originally published in serial form over a couple of months in a, a magazine and then published as a book. And I know Alistair McCall's done that with 44 Scotland Street. With these, uh, yeah. Uh, that's interesting, actually, because um, my publisher at uh, Berlin and Polygon uh, that have published the Soul Trilogy, they're very, very much aware of that history. So Alexander McCall Smith is probably their biggest selling writer. And, you know, the, if you look at his kind of Scotsman stories, the stories set in Scotland Street, they aggregate into a book a bit like Bucking. So, yeah, that's not uncommon that in the world, but I think that, that he's the best, Alexander McCall Smith would be the best Scottish example of that, where there's a daily newspaper or a weekly newspaper edition that people get excited about. But, you know, it, it's one of those things, you know, Dickens was a really good kind of purveyor of that and other Victorian writers as well. In terms of the, the book, when would you, when would the first time you have read that? I would have read that probably in, uh, we're talking here about late primary, primary, early secondary. So talking about, yeah, probably primary seven, actually, because when I went on one of the tours past Buckins House, it was my, my, my primary school teacher that took us on that. So I'm guessing I was aware of it at that age. But then I think I probably read it two or three times. In fact, I've got an edition of it on my bookshelf behind me now. I always like having one around just in case, you know, because there's always, I'm actually, I'll come on to this in a minute when we talk about John Le Carre, but I've been reading every obituary about him. And, I, and I, I'm quite fascinated by, you know, those kind of characters that had some connection with the Secret Service or things like that. Because it's funny, again, you know, John Buchan, as you say, he'd, he was more than just a writer. A lot of people would know him for the, the books, but I mean, he was, I hadn't realised he was Governor General of Canada at one point as yeah. well, that, you yeah. know, he, he was part of the, the kind of British establishment. I suppose a lot yeah. of people would know the story from the films as much as, as maybe in recent years having read the book. That's right. I, I think that's right. But, you know, you're talking about the, the Canada thing because of his connection to Perth. My uncle Jimmy, who was emigrating to Canada, imagined that somehow John Buchan could do him a favour. Now, Buchan was, <laughs> Buchan was no longer in that role, but my uncle Jimmy sat down one night and wrote, and you know you get these uh, biros in working-class Scotland that leak, and you're kind of trying to write a letter that's kind of half leaking on you and things like that. I always remember my uncle Jimmy effing and blinding about this bloody biro as he tried to write to the, who he assumed was the, uh, the Attorney General of Canada, whatever Buckins' role was. He ended up going to uh, Saskatchewan, emigrated there to 
Uranium City. Just, <laughs> just always makes me laugh when I see it. Can you, my uncle Jimmy, thinking, oh, well, Scotland's a bit bleak. Where are you going, Uranium City? <laughs> you mentioned about the being taken past the house. Was it marked in any way, or has it been marked as a kind of historical? It wasn't back in those days, but I think the council have now marked it simply because, you know, Bucking's sufficiently well known globally as well. I mean, it would be the kind of thing my sister, Marilyn, who's my older sister, had a flat next door to it later in life. In fact, when she first got married and she had the, the villas have been converted into two flats and she had the upstairs flat right next to John Buckin's house. And I remember her saying to me that periodically you would see people outside Buckin's house looking and they were clearly either students or they were Japanese tourists or something like that. So there was clearly, a, I would say it was a kind of a trickle of interest in it back in those days. But I think since then the council have given it more of a plaque so that there's something for people to register. But it's, it's hardly kind of Baker Street. You know, you get these flood tourists going <laughs> It's not like that. It's like two or three a week. That's well, not, it's not bad. It's not bad. It's something for Perth to boast of. Yeah, yeah. If I can take you on to your formative years choice now, sure. And the book that you've chosen is A Cool Million by Nathaniel West. Okay, so I can actually go right back to the day. I was in uh, fifth year at school and I was sitting, so a teenager, I was sitting in my English class and we had this English teacher who in lots of ways now, he's long since passed away now, but he was the sort of guy that I would love to meet now again and kind of engage with him as an adult because at the time I was in the generation that was where it was puerile stuff, trying to take the piss out of the teacher and things like that. And that was kind of where I was in my head. And I vividly remember this day. The teacher's name was Mr. Hopkins and he was his nickname was just Hoppy. And he had this very, very, very strange sonorous, almost boring delivery, but he would say, good morning, everyone. And he kind of, his, his voice, he spoke into his own chest, you know? And so there wasn't a lot of great buy into his classes. And one day, I remember one day, I, honestly, I think I might still have it somewhere in my old collection, the, the paper that I wrote down. He said, Hoppy said, and I'm sort of paraphrasing the words, Today, I'm going to recommend the greatest books of the 20th century. And you're all going, I write, okay. And then he said, many of these books have been banned due to their sexual content. He said, everybody's doing with a pen to go to all some of this, right? And I vividly remember writing down the list of those books. And it was, there was things like Last Exit to Brooklyn. There was um, Kerouac's On the Road. There was um, Lolita. Oh, endless numbers of things. And and probably, if I was honest, the books were all American and they were some of the classics of kind of mid-century um, American novels, the, the kings, the biggies, you know. And, and one of them, which I managed to get out of the, out of the library, rather, uh, was called A Cool Million by Nathaniel West. It was probably number three or four in his list. Uh, and I was so taken by this book when I read it and I went out to the library and got it. I couldn't buy it at the time. It wasn't in print, certainly not in Perth, but um, I, I got it from the library. And it came as a small kind of almost mini collection with another book called Miss Lonely Hearts. And The Cool Million had the most remarkable subtitle. It's called The Dismantling of Lemuel Pitkin. 
And I thought, wow, this is, sounds bizarre. And what it was, was a kind of almost like a, a populist fascist dictator from the southern states that rose to power, kind of like a Trump figure that rises to power and then is doing this kind of set-piece speech where uh, by this time he's now got a wig, false teeth, and he's had an accident and has a wooden leg. And so the finale of the book is when this fascist collapses and dismantles. His wig falls off, his teeth drop out, and he collapses with a wooden leg. And it's really about, it's it's an anti-fascist novel, if you like, but brilliantly, brilliantly written and very, very easy to read. There's a a kind of ease with which uh, Nathaniel West, a brilliant, brilliant writer, Miss Lonely Hearts was really about a woman in the Lonely Hearts columns of a, of a newspaper. And so to some extent, he gave me so many insights, one of which is that you could write a political novel without being political. You know, you could do it through just choosing a character that crystallizes the kind of values, in this case, anti-fascism. Uh, he also uh, gave me the lesson that you can write about very, very popular subject matter but give them a kind of serious intention. So in this case, Miss Lonely Hearts was a, a, literally a Lonely Hearts column that was at the centre of the story. And so you were getting two, the cool million was two books for the price of one. But he, absolutely brilliant, brilliant writer. And to this day, he's one of the ones that I would recommend young people just pick up. Nathaniel West, a cool million. It's funny when uh, I wasn't aware of the, the book at all. And what was interesting, I think it was published in 1934. And I'd read a book recently it Can't Happen Here by Sinclair Lewis, which was published right. in 1935. Yeah. And it's kind yeah. of similar idea. It's like a kind of populist politician becomes yeah. president and then basically sets up a fascist dictatorship. So I'm, I'm guessing a lot of writers at that time in America were looking at what was happening in Europe, but also yeah. seeing some elements of that in the American political discourse. That's right. And, and for example, the era as well had already thrown up three or four people that might reasonably have become president that were from the kind of populist right there, there was um the big fish his name was he was from new orleans uh, huey long there was a, actually a priest from harlem called father cochlin an irish american priest and they all had very kind of right-wing populist ideas about how society should manage i think nathaniel west was satirizing them as well as warning about fascism in europe which uh, sinclair lewis was doing uh, as well. You know what, I think the Sinclair Lewis book might have been on Hoppy's list as well, because he, he clearly had chosen books from the 1930s to the 1960s, you know, and the idea that Hubert Selby's last exit to Brooklyn, which was banned, you know, and your teacher recommending that you go and read this, I was absolutely mm-hmm. smitten by him. I, I, I remember the very, very, very first night that, so we can date this, it was a New Year's Eve the night that the UK entered the European Union. And I remember Hoppy had died. And one of my friends said, we were wandering about kind of first footing. One of my mates said, why don't we go and chap on Hoppy's door because his wife will be in and she's probably feeling a wee bit sad and all the rest of it. So sure enough, we knocked on the door. She opened the door, invited us in for a drink and a chat. And she was quite tearful because, you know, some of his pupils had turned up. And and of course, what I'd forgotten about him until that night was that he was a mega, mega European, obsessive about the European project. And the fact that 
we were entering Europe and he had missed that day was something that was really grieving the, the, the widow. Uh, what he would have made a Brexit, our Lord only knows. <laughs> but uh, but a, a fascinating man, not a man that I had been kind to as a, a pupil. I was actually a bit of a rogue. But on the day that he made those recommendations, stayed with me for the rest of my life. A great teacher, you can't beat them. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think it's interesting the number of times I've had conversations on the podcast and particularly in, in this choice, it's very often it's a particular teacher who just puts yeah. a book in your hand or in your case, a list. And I like the idea of, as I say, you've got this idea of this boring teacher and yeah. you know, nothing's interesting. And I wonder if in his head he's thinking, when I say these words about why the, these books have been banned, I know these guys are going to perk up. Well, do you know what? I, I think there was, I think there was a wee, the wise side of him in his head was thinking, I know who to get this lot interested. And it, he used the words, he says, many of which have been banned and censored due to their sexual content. And you could just see literally folk getting their pencils out and I'm going, all right, let's go. Uh, and many of them were actually, if not banned, they had been withdrawn or they'd been pulped or they or there had been a campaign against the publisher. So it was actually even interesting reading the history of the books rather than actually reading the books, you know. Uh, but A Cool Million was the one that stood out for me. Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddehy, and my guest, Stuart Cosgrove. And Stuart, we're on to book choice number three. It's a book you'd recommend to anyone. And it goes back to you were touching earlier on about John Le Carre, who, you know, we're recording this just three days after he's passed away at the age of 89. And the book that you've chosen of his is Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy. Yeah, from the uh, so-called Carla trilogy. It's probably the one that's the most famous because it's been made in a TV series with Alex Guinness and then more recently the, the movie as well. I, I think it's a, a fascinating book, endlessly fascinating. And um, I actually feel that it's the kind of book that the more you reread it, the more intensely fascinated you become. I mean, because the characters, in, you know, they're all engaged at the highest level of uh, spycraft and statecraft in the UK at a point immediately after the betrayal uh, of the British uh, Secret Service by a range of kind of Cambridge spies that have uh, been double agents or have uh, defected to the USSR. And so it's really, really fascinating because of uh, the world into which it takes you. And one of the things that I, I love about it is clearly, you know, it's not all about spying. It's, a, it's about characters and great books that write kind of rich and complex characters that, in a way, you know, probably because it's called the Carla Trilogy, one of the big conflicts across the whole series of books is between George Smiley, who's the uh, person that's brought in to try and root out the double agents or the moles within uh, the British Secret Service in the so-called circus. And his the big rivalry that they're dealing with is what they call Moscow Central, whose top spymaster is this guy called Carla. But what's really fascinating about it is it's about how they try to get inside each other's heads how they try to imagine what's motivating or what decisions someone might have made for what reasons. And sometimes the reasons are purely turning people because they can, not that the material or the knowledge that they get from them is world-changing, just simply that they've won a little war 
in the ongoing kind of fight between two secret services. And the Carla character, who's a fascinating Muscovite kind of spy master, has worked out that George Smiley's wife, Anne, is sexually promiscuous and having relationships with other people within the service. And he uses that as a mechanism to get inside George's head. And it's really, really fascinating. And it's a brilliant, brilliant book. Intensely well-developed in terms of plot, but the characterization is absolutely superb. Because the first book of his that I read was The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. And I always remember it was just a paperback. My mum and dad had it. And I think it's one of those books, you know, that way when you, you kind of progress on to grown-up books, as it were, and you find these books about the house. And suddenly it's a kind of step from whatever I was reading at the time to suddenly reading a, a book that like, my dad would have read. And I, it's always, I've still got the wee copy of the books. So I just a wee kind of, it's almost bits in the palm of your hand. So I've always got a strong affection for that one for that reason, because I would have read it in my early teens. Yeah, and one, one of the things that uh, quite a lot of people are saying in the obituaries, you mentioned the death of Lacari recently, but what, one of the things that frequently has come up in the obituaries is exactly that, that he was writing books that whilst on the surface appeared to be genre thrillers set in spies and whatever, in fact, they were closer to literary fictional classics you know you were reading fiction of a much higher quality than the fast page turning chase novel of the kind of spy thrillers that might have been around at the time you know no great great writer and sadly missed what i found extraordinary as well just when i was just looking into his life that i think his last book came out just in, in 2019 so he'd been 88 at the time the book was set was very much contemporary because i think he did go back into, you know, he wrote a book, I think, was it A Legacy of Spies, that kind of went yeah. back into that period of time, the Cold War period. But the, the last book, Agent Running in the Field, is set in 2018, touches on current political situation with Russia, but also with Brexit and what have you, and, which I think is amazing for somebody of that age to still be right on the ball in terms of the topics he was writing about. Yeah, I mean, he was so uh, fiercely anti-Brexit. It's quite, I mean, he's... Uh, when he died, he'd already, I think, identified a home near Dublin that he was buying in order to stay in Europe and exit. And I mean, the idea that John le Carre, the guy who's kind of defined a British state, statecraft at the height of the Cold War, would end up saying Britain's a busted flush, I'm out of here, is quite, quite politically quite remarkable. But a, a phenomenally uh, good writer. I, I tended, I don't know whether this is true of other great writers, but I think sometimes writers find their era, they find their period. And I always felt that when John le Carre started to write about, say, for example, the Middle East and kind of disputes over oil and things like that, I, I kind of felt it less, less pressing for me. I kind of love the claustrophobic idea that they were all in these rooms together at Cambridge Circus, still trying to kind of win the Cold War. I thought that was when he was at his absolute best. And I'm not saying that the novels out with that don't have merit. I just think that sometimes a writer finds the era that they understand and finds the deceits, the deceptions and the character contradictions of that era as well. I mentioned, and we spoke at the start of the, the podcast, just about the trilogy of books that you had written about soul music and social change, and also mentioned that your latest book had come out in September 2020, Cassius X. And again, it's just a period uh, in, the, I suppose, the early years of Muhammad Ali. That period, I think, you know, when he's about to join the, the Nation of Islam and 
again, is that a character or a period in time that drew you to, to write about it? It's actually as much a period in time. I mean, the, the trilogy and Cassius X are both, um, are all set in the 60s when soul music is at its kind of creative height, 60s soul music anyway. I wanted to write a book, having written the trilogy towards the end of the 60s, I wanted a book that looked at the origins and the beginnings of soul music. And curiously enough, I was mopping around looking for a city that would somehow capture all of that. And it's quite difficult because you can't do LA in New York. New York was a city where lots of people, of course, went to work in the music industry, but it was not their city. It was a city they moved to and they were there as a consequence of their career. So I looked around and I thought briefly about Miami, but when I was researching it and I had in my idea a prequel to the trilogy, Cassius kept coming up as a character and there were so many traits of his life that gave me the links into religion, into politics, into philosophy, into media, a whole range of different things. Uh, and in fact, because he is converting, as you say, to Nation of Islam, and one of the requirements is the denial of your slave name, that you put an X through your slave name. Um, and he was living in this immediate period prior to his world title fight against Sonny Liston. He was, uh, in his own private life, going to the mosque, um, fulfilling the requirements of his conversion to the Nation of Islam, and was living his life as Cassius X. He hadn't yet become Muhammad Ali, and most people knew him as Cassius Marcellus Clay, which was the name that he fought under in terms of his contract. And I was very interested in those few months because he was one of the great witnesses to soul music. He'd befriended Sam Cooke. His girlfriend was Dee Dee Sharp. He's a personal friend of Chubby Checker. He knew all the big DJs of the era. He was a collector. He had his own record collection. So I found him a fascinating way. Rather than actually doing a year like Miami 63, I decided I would do it around a character who was witness to those events. I also think as well, I mean, he's such a, an iconic figure, certainly in sporting terms. But maybe, I'm not sure if less well-known in that early period, because obviously once he becomes world champion and then changes his name and everybody knows who he is, but, you know, you've taken it back. Just that, that, just that small step back to kind of yeah. also get yeah. a wee glimpse into him. Because I think that a lot of people come to be aware of him when he became the, unexpectedly when he became heavyweight champion of the world. And as you say, only a month after that, he'd fully converted, became Muhammad Ali, and that became his kind of dominant image and personality. And also, if you remember too, this was a time when, there's another couple of years yet, but he'd already been sent draft papers to draft him to the war in Vietnam. And gradually, of course, he began to resist the draft, in part because of the Nation of Islam were against the war, and indeed um, against any war other than jihad against holy war they would be supportive of but not military expeditions for nation state purposes so by refusing the draft he, he became the figure perhaps the most famous figure that was against the war in vietnam and history proved to be on his side and i think because of that he stood out as this great character and just about everything the man did in his life became, as you were used to word, iconic in the true sense of the, that word. He became an icon of so many different parts of social life and political life. I mean, a, a great, great character. But I always felt that the Cassius X bit of his life had been literally unwritten about, I mean, virtually unwritten about. 
Because conversion to nation of Islam isn't something that you, where you chap on a door and the guy says, I find you're in. You know, you have to go through an entire training program. You have to do certain kind of, uh, there's expectations of it. You know, if you, it's a wee bit like, I remember when Tony Blair converted to Catholicism, it wasn't just like he'd say, oh, I'm the prime minister. Uh, can you convert me, please? He had to go through his, his understandings of catechism and all, all of those things that as a Catholic you'd be taught at primary school. He had to go through them as one of the most famous adult politicians in the world. So similarly with Cassius, he had to go through uh, a period of knowledge, of training, of eliminating his slave name, uh, and actually of also understanding the core values, not just the religious values, the uh, religio-political values of the nation of Islam at that time. I mean, in terms of, of you as a writer, is that quite exciting when you, you say that period of, of him as Cassius X really hadn't been documented? And you, you kind of zone in on that. That must give you that kind of impetus, you're thinking, because obviously you need that because there's a lot of research, a lot of work involved. If you've got that excitement of almost bringing the story to people for the first time. Well, funnily enough, I actually um, was very excited by that. And, that, you know, as I was writing the book, I realised that I was onto something and I was very kind of thrilled by that. And I remember about two or three days after it published, um, the publishers had put out a social media flyer about it and blah, blah, blah. Remember this guy, he was a Hibs fan. I can't remember his name now, but I knew he was a Hibs fan. And he came in the way that people brutally do on Twitter. And he just turned around and says, Aye, just what everybody needs, a biography of Muhammad Ali. There's hundreds of them already. And I thought, well, this guy not only clearly hasn't read the book, clearly hasn't understood the premise of the book, and is so quick to sound off on Twitter, he's actually making a bit of a dick of himself. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I'm not, not someone for being aggressive with people or fighting back. And at one level, it was here today, gone tomorrow. But, you know, the way that you do, because you can't stop yourself, I clicked into his profile and it said that he was a PhD student working on a doctorate on prison reform. So I just pinged him a little tweet saying, no, another doc, no, another <laughs> dissertation on prison reform. There's been hundreds of them since the 19th century. What's new? You know, and he did come back to me and said, yeah, oh, sorry, Stuart, I did jump the gun a wee bit there, you know. Because I was kind of saying to him, you will almost certainly within your PhD believe that you're saying something about prison reform that's innovative or new or imaginative. You know, cut other people the right to be that as well. And once you'd said that tweet, did you sit back and think that was quite a good one? Paul, I'm going to be, it was like one of St. Johnson's finest away goals. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about your writing, Stuart, it takes us on to the fourth book choice, and that's a book you couldn't be paid to read again, which could possibly be my favourite choice ever in this category. And the book you've chosen is a book called Hamden Babylon, Sex and Scandal in Scottish Football by Stuart Cosgrove. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I, I, I was thinking hard about this, but really I could not in my wildest dreams imagine writing that book or writing an update on it. I would say once a month, I get people, whenever there's a big scandal, you know, it only needs to be Alan McGregor arrested in Glasgow for fighting with a bouncer or something like that. And somebody will come and say, oh, Stuart, you should update Hamden Babylon. And people have got it in their mind that this book, you know, was a classic of its kind. Now, uh, the book was originally almost a kind of derivation of a 
Hollywood Babylon, the Kenneth Anger book. And at the time, it was actually a very kind of original thought. I'll write a book that looks at sex and scandal in Scottish football. But since then, there's been a lot of kind of variations on that theme over the years. There's been a lot of books about bad boys, and I've done documentaries at Channel 4 and football stories about the bad boy 11 and things like that, which are formats to look at misbehaviour off the pitch. And gradually over the times, the tabloids as well have become increasingly more interested in that as a subject matter. So to some extent, I feel the book was of its era and of its moment. And so much has happened in Scottish football since then. Um, For example, the Bosman ruling has meant that most clubs have players that have been drawn in on the global transfer market and are not from Scotland. And whilst they may have had kind of may have had little kind of dodgy pasts at their school in Beirut or something like that, or in, you know, Rwanda or in, even in Belgium. It doesn't actually feel to me as prescient as the fact that they were arrested in Bishop Briggs. There's something about it that kind of doesn't resonate for me, all of that. So I kind of felt that when the, the book went out of print, it's been reprinted, republished three or four times, I think. And every time people ask me about it, I just kind of get a heavy feeling in my heart, thinking, right, to write that book again would probably take me six months. And frankly, I've got better things to do with six months. So it is a book that I am quite happy to consign to Room 101 and never see again. I suppose in terms of, of your own writing, you've, you're kind of you're writing about completely different subjects as well, over and above football. So to the extent you don't want to go back, unless you came up with a completely different football project that you wanted to yeah. write about. I also find football to be a subject that is the best way of, of, of saying this, that I think you can write about passion and passionate about soul music. And there's clearly a case that if you talk about some of the other people, John Lacari was clearly passionate about the ethics of the Secret Service, you know. So I, I understand that you can take a passion and write a good book about it. I just feel with Scottish football that the economics of it are predicated against you writing a, a book that sells and sells well. This I know that this um, is not an easy thing to say to fans of Celtic and Rangers because, as you know, Paul, they're global brands, right? But in actual fact, nobody's really that interested in them. You try and sell a book about Rangers or a book about Celtic in Waterstones and Carlisle, and they'll, they'll lie there unbought and unloved for years. Uh, whereas sitting next to that, Detroit 67 sells really well in England because there's a lot of people who are obsessed with soul music. So, and it's not just about books that will sell. It's about books that, that really kind of interest you. I've had two or three people that have given me books about the implosion of Rangers. And whilst it's fascinating, and you know, like every other Scottish football fan, I had very, very clear views about it. The idea of kind of going into it and the forensic detail you need to do in order to kind of understand it, I just find it less appealing to me. Um, A publisher brought out Craig White's book, which someone tried to claim was something to do with me and those mad kind of diagrams that they do online to try and prove conspiracy, you know. And I had nothing to do with Craig White's book. I would not... absolutely have absolutely zero interest in it and uh, the book came out it did okay I didn't even pre-read it the publisher said would you would you like to read it and give me your comments and I thought no I'll not bother I'll maybe see it when it comes out even when it came out I didn't really have a lot of great kind of interest in it 
because in a way, I don't know why that would be, but I think that the best football books have got a subject at the core of them that that's kind of feels new, you know. Um, so uh, I read uh, a book. I'm trying to think of the best one. Simon Cooper, the sports writer for the Financial Times, wrote a book called Football Against the Enemy. And what it was, was a series of fixtures, of which actually he included Rangers Celtic. I thought it was actually the weakest chapter of all of them, because in a way it kind of had this kind of slightly kind of thin idea about sectarianism, dividing a city and all the rest of it. The other elements of it were, you know, the football match that started the war between El Salvador and Honduras. You know, there was stuff that was just really, really fascinating about the breakup of Yugoslavia and the club matches between the Bosnian and Serbian clubs of that time. It just felt like a book rich in meaning rather than sometimes the hagiographies that you see. You just wonder who's actually going to buy a book other than hardcore fans, if you were to write a book about a famous footballer that's been with a club for 20 or 15 seasons, who's actually going to read that rather than just the hardcore fans? It feels to me to be too narrow a canvas, would be the way I would put it. And I suppose, obviously, uh, you couldn't pay to read or write Hamden in Babylon again, but I suppose for you, the vehicle in terms of your know, interest in football and being able to talk about it would be off the ball which, you know, I mentioned it started back in 1994 and I know there was, a, there was a great documentary, you know, last year celebrating the, the 25 years. As an institution, it's a Scottish football yeah. institution, which when you started, you could probably never have envisaged that's how it would have turned out. No, I think when we started, it was very much kind of the football fanzine of the day and things like that. And it had fairly kind of modest ambitions to be that. But gradually as it's, gradually as its success grew, Paul, something started to happen. And the things that became most popular was, uh, there's a subject that we put in every week. So we talk about what the big talking points of football were that week. And a lot of that just now is to do with coronavirus and the restrictions and the constraints and the regulations and the games and no fans and all of that stuff. So we talk about that, but we always have a talking point every week that's what we refer to as the uh, as kind of like a Scottish people's story. So this might be something like, I'm plucking out of the air, it could be something like the Janny you'll never forget. And it's inviting people to write in about their school janitor and whether he was a kind of neo-Nazi or whether he was a good guy or whether he helped you in your plots and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And the feedback we get for stuff like that is, is phenomenal. But it does raise the question about whether... And, you know, this is kind of politics with probably a capital P, this one. You wonder whether the success of that strand within the show indicates that Scottish people feel slightly starved of their own culture on, on radio, from Radio Scotland, BBC Radio Scotland, and that they kind of, that they connect with this because it's a bit of the life that they've led. Uh, this tends to be people who, you know, were working class, lower middle class, went, lived in housing schemes, went to ordinary schools. You know, it plays to that collective experience that many, many millions of Scottish people have had. And clearly it's by some distance uh, one of the biggest uh, rating programmes on BBC Radio Scotland um, and probably, as you say, has got its institutional space now. And although it sits within the sports department, it's not really a football show in any true sense, you know. 
in terms of the podcast, I'll take you on to your last book choice in this, and that is either the last book you read or the book that you're currently reading. And the book you've chosen is a book called Neuro Tribes, and the subtitle to that is The Legacy of Autism and How to Think Smarter About People Who Think Differently by Steve Silberman. Yeah, absolutely stunning, stunning book. Probably of all of them, the book that's done most to make me think. I've got a wee boy, Jack, who's got... uh, uh, autism diagnosis. He's um, eight year old, very happy young kid, and uh, he's got he's on the mild in the spectrum, but he's and he's in a mainstream school. So one of the things I, think I need to start with is a kind of uh, context here because this is a subject that completely fascinates me. But it's not Paul because I'm looking for a woe is me story because. You know, we're a very decent family. As I said earlier, I've got very good income coming in and we jacked the mainstream school. So compared with many, many families who have got children with learning disabilities or with uh, autism spectrum conditions, we're in a great place. So it's not about that. It's more about another question, which is the whole idea about how society begins to understand uh, all the various different kind of neurological challenges that we face. And what's interesting about him is he talks the way that he used tribes in it. Steve Silberman, the author, used to be, uh, still is a journalist with Wired magazine. And he had gone out to do big set piece interviews with Sergey Brin, with the people at Apple, with the people at Google, with, you know, the Amazon, all their famous mathematicians and algorithm experts. And he began to realize that these guys all had a, if you like, a kind of, there was a hint of them themselves having an autistic condition or that they had children. And that started to fascinate him. So he started to go on this journey to try and trace the history and evolution and development of autism as a condition. But he also used the word tribe in the title because what he'd identified is that within the era that we live in, uh, up to 86% of people in society will have some uh, form of uh, mental health challenges, whether that's depression, whether that's dyspraxia, whether that's something like, for example, bipolar, and indeed in in the case of our young boy, uh, an autism diagnosis. And if you look at that, 86%, that's a staggering amount of people. Um, and this is people now coming into the schooling system, people who 50 years ago would not have been diagnosed, in some cases would have been put into asylums or locked away or misunderstood. Uh, and what at the core of Steve's book, he, he puts forward an argument that was really compelling for me. He said, if you go back to the days of Martin Luther King, he was putting forward an argument about race, racial justice and, and racism within American society. If you look back at the the suffragettes and at the rise of feminism, they're talking about women and uh, justice for them in in society. All of those are absolutely profoundly important things that emerged in the 20th century as huge phenomenon. Uh, And whilst people who are interested in those subjects would still tell you that they're irresolved and there's still a lot of work to do, at least as a society, we broadly know that sexism and racism are not acceptable. When you move on to neurodiversity, that's actually a very different story. People are confused. They don't understand the language. They're not quite sure what discrimination would look like. 
our society and its key institutions, school, housing, uh, the job market. These are all things that are actually uh, often closed or where there are barriers to people with neurological uh, differences. So Steve Silverman, Silverman's book makes the argument that neurodiversity is the next big challenge for us as, a, as, a, as human beings within society. And that when we move into the next 50, you know, five decades of our life, the, the fight to challenge the restrictions on people that have got neurodiverse issues in their life is the biggie. It's a great book. It's a compelling book. It's a, a book that argues a point, but also tells you a history and a story. And it's been hugely helpful for me because I better understand my own son's condition through this book. Because there were two things that, that struck me when I was just doing a wee bit of research into the book is one, that idea of, and you often hear of it, where people have a, a physical health problem, then it's visible, it's treatable, and it's treated differently than if people yeah. have a mental health issue where it's maybe not instantly visible. So people find that more difficult to accept yeah. or understand. But then also, I think, you know, particularly with something like autism, I wonder as well if, you know, sometimes particularly cinematically or, or TV, it's portrayed in a certain way. So, f- you know, for people of a certain generation, if you said to them autism, they think of films like Rain Man. But that's yeah. such a simplistic way of dealing with, yeah. as you say, something that's complex. It involves a whole wide range of different people with different conditions or different issues that they have to deal with. And I'm guessing books like that are, are kind of cutting through that to try and educate people. Try yeah, they're trying to put forward uh, big questions. And just to give you a little kind of insight, Jack's diagnosis came after one of his nursery nurses. So going back to when he was three, uh, he was at a nursery in Glasgow. And this young girl, I mean, 18, 19-year-old, and in her first job working as a nursery care assistant, she took me aside and said, oh, I'm noticing that Jack's not playing with the rest of the kids as well. He's not even that interested in parallel play. He seems to want to be on his own. And she said, I've just come from, I don't want to, she said, look, I don't want to upset you or scare you, but I've just come back from an in-service training day about autism. And I think it's maybe worth you asking your doctor about it. So you're like, wow, okay. So I came back and went to the doctor. The doctor set Jack up for an autism diagnosis day in Bridgeton Health Centre. And he went, he did all that, and he came back with the diagnosis. So Were it not for the fact that Glasgow has what they call an early intervention strategy and a young girl aged 17 or 18 could tell me something about my child that I didn't know and I hadn't noticed and my wife hadn't noticed as kind of, you know, full, fully fledged professionals. It told me, first of all, that there's a lot good about what's going on in Scotland in this area. But it is also the case, as you say, that quite a lot of people, for example, Jack's primary one teacher, um, who's a wonderful, wonderful teacher and gave him a lot of kind of extra time and effort and whatever. She had said to me, I said, look, I'd like to buy you a Christmas present, you know. And she said, don't get me chocolate or flowers or anything like that. If you want to get me something, there's a book that I've looked on Amazon about autism in the classroom. And she said, I would like you to get me that. So I bought her the book, gave her the book. And she came back and she said to me the next term, she said, I've read this book. And she said, I wish now that I'd read it 20 years ago. She said, when I look back over the register of my kids over the last 20 odd years, I think I could probably comfortably identify 12 kids that had autism spectrum challenges and no one knew or no one cared. No one actually intervened on their behalf. And that for me was the kind of wake up call that Steve Solomon was talking about. It should be something that commonly people notice or 
can intervene on or help with them, whatever. And, you know, you fear your kid, you look, every parent fears how's, what's life for their kid going to be. So that's not unique, but you don't want, like, for example, Jack doesn't understand jokes that well. You know, now that sounds like, well, why would that be a, a big issue? You know, well, it's a big issue if you're sitting in a pub and someone that's a hard man cracks a joke. You have to learn to laugh, you know, and you don't want them to turn around and say, you're not laughing at my jokes outside, you know? So you have anxieties about everything when you're a parent, but the anxieties about his um, condition, we are all the time having to learn and work out. For example, very simple thing, He's at his best when he's forewarned. So if we're going to do something that we know he doesn't like or we know he's not going to enjoy, we have to tell him three days in advance, three or four times that it's going to happen. And then on the day that it's going to happen, he's quite happy. He knows it's going to happen. If you just simply hit him with it, he goes into a meltdown and he can't accept it and he can't. You know, so that adaptability in the book, um, I think Steve refers to it as rigidity of mind. The idea that your mind's rigid around certain subjects. Now, that's not uniquely a, a condition of autism. I know a lot of people that are very, very rigid of mind. You know, some bloggers that are Celtic fans can be very rigid of mind. <laughs> but nonetheless, um, it can be within the autism spectrum, a condition that can hold you back. You know, uh, it's a great book, one I would thoroughly recommend and one that's helped me in my life. So Steve Silverman, and it's called Neurotribes. And in terms of your, your reading tastes in general, do you kind of mix between fiction and, and non-fiction or do you kind of know what you're going to read or just you know, things fall into your lap and, and you decide to either read or reread them? I kind of pick and mix and I, I like things that are relevant to where I am. So my wife's a Schlank and Tamil. So I've kind of had a lot of interest in the history of the um, Tamil nationalist kind of political issue. So if I'm in Sri Lanka with Sharani, I'll pick up books that are the new talked about book in town, whether it's a romance, a literary fiction, whether it's a crime book or whether it's a social history about the, uh, the civil war in Sri Lanka. So I tend to like reading books. So if I went to Turkey on holiday, I'd try and find out what the top novel being sold in Turkey at that time was and get the English edition of it. I, I like doing that. But I, I must say that I've kind of, I'm a great lover of, of books of social history, of fact of the history of cultures and societies. Uh, let me give you a little kind of, um, finishing a little kind of thing. If you're on Twitter a lot, you'll sometimes see people referring to themselves as things like Aspie Girl or Aspie Girl 93 or whatever. And uh, Steve Silverman hints at this needs book, although the evidence of it has come more recently. Uh, Greta Thunberg, the, the young woman who is one of the kind of eco-warriors in the world, Greta uh, has got Asperger's syndrome, which is uh, a condition on the autism spectrum. And she refers to herself as an Aspie girl, meaning that she's a young teenage girl with Asperger's, of whom there are kind of tens of thousands around the world. And they often identify themselves as Aspie girls. That's their kind of little kind of piece of shtick, as it were. And what's fascinating about it is that it's probably the first subculture that's defined itself around a neurological condition rather than the clothes they wear or whatever. Now, as a kid growing up, I was a suede head. I'd have, you know, uh, Doc Martens. I would have kind of Levi 501s. I'd have my Fred Perry shirt. And I knew what I was through what I wore. These girls are saying we are the first subculture that are defined by our neurological condition rather than just what we wear. 
Now, some of them can be gothy and some of them can be, you know, a little bit kind of uh, emo and all of that. But they define themselves first and foremost as girls with Asperger's. Well, we are almost out of time, Stuart. It's been fascinating talking about your favourite books and also your, your not-so-favourite book. Just one last yeah. last question. You'd mentioned, obviously, you've been pretty prolific in terms of your own work in recent years. Are you? What, what's the latest project that you, you're working on now in terms of your next book? Uh, I'm nearly finishing. I'm, I'm two chapters of finishing another book that will be published next year. Um, the title of the book is Hey America, Black Music and the White House. And what it is is the story of the evolution and development of black music from, you know, jazz and R&B in the 50s all the way up to the urban music of today. But it follows the changing social patterns of America. So it takes you from civil rights to Black Lives Matter, uh, from kind of soul music to hip hop, uh, but particularly from the presidency of Eisenhower to the presidency of Joe Biden and everything in between the war in Vietnam. So it's quite a big, epic book, which pulls together some of the social strands that are in the trilogy and indeed that are in Cassius X. So a big book out next year, uh, a doorstep, I would imagine, when it's finished. Well, we'll look forward to that uh, next year when that comes out. But as I say, uh, I've really enjoyed chatting to you about books today, Stuart, and thanks very much for joining me on the podcast. Absolute pleasure, Paul. Lovely to meet you again, and uh, we'll see you again soon when the shit show's over. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.